Welcome to Prima's podcast. My name is Shonda Ragland. I manage the education and training programs at the Public Risk Management Association. Today, Chris Grolnick will discuss workplace violence and active shooter prevention. Chris is an award-winning former police investigator and one of the nation's highly respected policy experts in the prevention of domestic terrorism. Recognized as a leader of police and public safety initiatives, Chris has experience advising the highest levels of government and corporate executives. With extensive experience in small to medium-sized consulting businesses, Chris organized and currently leads a workplace violence coalition comprised of 15 companies known as the Safe to Safest Strategic Alliance. Prior to his current endeavors, Chris spent 12 years as a Marine and Marine Corps senior drill instructor. Chris also served as a police corporal, narcotics detective, SWAT operator, element leader, and police officer for the city of McKinney, Texas between 2002 and 2012. He indefinitely retains his Masterpiece Officer License in the state of Texas. Chris Grolnick is now internationally recognized as one of the leading experts and authorities on the phenomenon of active shooter events and domestic terrorism prevention. He has appeared on numerous national television networks, including Fox, CNN, OANN, ABC, CBS, and NBC, along with numerous syndicated radio broadcast programs. We will also be joined by Danica Williams, a member of Prima's education and training team. Danica will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the show. Active shooter, workplace violence, terrorism. We hear these three terms used quite frequently, often interchangeably. Are they different? If so, what differentiates them? I think it's a great question um, to try to delineate between the three terms, specifically active shooter, workplace violence, and terrorism. If you would take the middle question of or statement, workplace violence, that's obviously taking place at the workplace. And we know that the Bureau of Labor Statistics tell us that approximately 63 to 73%, and it's growing every day, if you were to put everything together on a, in a pie chart, you would see the majority of these incidents take place near some type of workplace. Now, we can delineate between schools and hospitals and government locations, but there's still workers there. And an active shooter event is categorized as one where the person or the perpetrator that is committing the crime or the heinous act, they're trying to right some perceived wrong. So many papers, news entities, etc., and even other companies, frankly, reduce this to simply crazy people with guns that go in and create these mass murders. When the fact is, these are quite often very smart individuals that study the works of other people. And then they go in and they perpetrate a crime trying to up their kill rate, if you will, for lack of a better common phrase, um, because that's their mission. They're trying to make a statement. They want you to know they exist. They feel wronged, and they're trying to right that perceived wrong. And often we see this in the workplace. But what we're starting to see is, like you asked about terrorism, terrorism is usually wrapped around these three fundamental pillars, and that's religion, ideology, and um, politics, if you will. So if you have a political, religious, or ideological objective that you're trying to further, and you're using terrorism to do so, you're causing some type of fear 
in a gross number of people. So it would inhibit them from trying to do common things, such as what we just saw this past week in Brussels, a terrorist event hit a target at an airport where, you know, most people travel. So they're trying to, and they're trying to really tamper down the feelings of the individuals to where they don't get into that travel network, if you will, and try to shut down that industry. And as, as a whole, we need to fight that. We need to, we need to combat that by just simply taking into account these are one-off instances. And with all due respect to the fallen, we need to learn from these events. Are these events blending? So as far as blending, what we're starting to see, if we saw, if we look back, you know, we learned from, from the past, right? So if we look back to as recently as San Bernardino, we can look at the San Bernardino terrorism event where the two perpetrators, and there were supposed to be three, used assault weapons and created an active shooter incident at a workplace, but their overall ideology was terrorism. So their their end goal was to create a terrorist attack on domestic soil um, from a global perspective because we know they were inspired by terrorism from abroad. And what we don't see in the workplace when you have a typical, and there's no atypical workplace violence active shooter, but if you study these active shooter incidences frequently as I do, there are some common themes. And it's when one or two people go in and they create an atrocity or like the two kids in 1999 at Columbine, when we really saw this revolution of active shooters take place. Um, Active shooters, like I said, they have that linear common denominator. They're trying to right a perceived wrong. They want the world to hear what nobody else is listening to. Where terrorism, they're trying to further their objectives of one of those three pillars we talked about. And although it could happen in the workplace, yes, it it transcends that. However, they are blending because we're starting to see terrorists gravitate towards the use of mass weapons or just simple weapons and then gain them into their advantage of a bombing, if you will. So they would start shooting in one direction and try to corral someone in another where an explosive device could be. Now, what steps can public entities, schools, even individuals take to decrease the likelihood of an active shooter or workplace violence situation occurring within their organization or municipality? This is a this is a really common question. And unfortunately, it, it's hard to reduce the terms in a simplistic manner. So I'm going to give you the 50,000 foot view because there's there's many steps that people can take and it takes a exceptional amount of training. But for public entities, there's simple steps. I mean, common sense steps that bring in your local police departments, talk to them, ask them about what their response is going to be. Ask them to talk to the people and tell them and understand, you know, these events, whether it's it doesn't matter what you call it. You don't need to get wrapped up in semantics. It doesn't need to be active shooter. It doesn't need to be workplace violence, school shooting, terrorism, just a, a, graphic event that's going to be horrific in nature you have to look at the hierarchy what is the one theme and the theme is people turn to the police and they ask what can we do and the police response will always be about response so what steps can they take is they need to get into the prevention side and that doesn't just mean or only mean or even intend to mean adding guards that have guns, because frankly, that might be a deterrent, 
but it's still not a preventative measure. It's one, but it's, it's one of very, it's one of many. So some steps they can take is learn more about these events, learn how the events unfold and understand these very specific three timelines that are probably the most prolific of anything as they relate to these atrocities. And one is it takes from zero to seven minutes on a national average for these events to unfold. It takes seven to 17 minutes. The, the level the average is actually 17, 17 minutes for police to respond, which means that person that's caught in an event like this is going to be stuck there for, for about 10 minutes plus the seven that it already took to occur before a police officer or first responder even shows up. And then it's going to take 23 minutes for the very first responder to show up and make contact with that first person, whether they're mortally wounded or just simply grazed or just cowering in a corner. And the first responder is not there to help them. The first responder is there to stop the threat. And they truly don't know that the threat is gone until they do a full search. So that means we need to work backwards from that 23 minutes. How could I help, say, you at your work or a principal and their admin staff? What happens in a school? Because there's three different periods that we're worried about in a school time frame during shootings. And that is obviously passing periods when all the kids are in the hallways, uh, even at higher institutions of learning, when they're going from one location to the next. The second is what we saw, like at, say, Virginia Tech, when most of the kids were in class because it was a very common class time. And then three, the administrative staff. What are, what are their schedules and how can you help them understand those time frames? So a lot of people ask, why are those time frames so important? And the fact is, if you can understand that it's going to take 23 minutes to, for help to get there, your first instinct should not be hide under a desk. Because we talked about the 1999 revolution, if you will, of understanding, because cable news cycles help these to the forefront of you know, the American mind, if you will, and globally, actually, um, that these things happen. And they happen more frequent, frequently than we'd like to admit. So we need to understand how do we how do we stop that and how do we prevent it? Because the response is not going to save us. It's the prevention that's going to save us. And if we put up a united front that says we have these seven things in place, and, and we're talking about seven out of a thousand, you know, because there's salespeople in many, many disciplines that will come in and tell them they have a new widget, they have a new biometric scanner, they have a new whatever. But the fact is very few of those acts act as deterrents. What, what you need to do is find the best solutions. And when we speak to large groups at the principal level or above, we try to you know delineate between those, say, thousand solutions and reduce it down to seven common sense things that fit their specific need. But two common ones are obvious, hardening the location, which means you know, making it more difficult for somebody to get in. And two, notification. Because if you can tell me what's going on down the hall and I don't need to walk down there to find out, and it turns out that there's an active shooter, that could be one less victim. So Chris, 
What is the difference between an organization providing their own training versus a police department or, say, the FBI or a consultant coming into the organization and performing that training? And are there disadvantages or advantages to either approaches? This is a little bit of a tricky question um, because so so many people, so many people will look back and say, okay, if we would have had the FBI come in, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you know, they're there to help us. Well, the FBI's main mission is to investigate crime. So, in other words, to get the FBI involved, there needs to be a crime that's committed, and then they can start investigating it. The FBI, about three years ago, put an agent in charge, a chief agent, stationed her at the White House, and she was in charge of active shooter everything. And the thing about FBI is just like local law enforcement. And remember, I'm a retired police officer, so I'm not disparaging them whatsoever. All I'm saying is they're really good at investigating and responding, responding to and investigating crimes. But what do they really know about prevention? Because so few people look back for future um, advantages. What consultants do is they usually go back and study these things in whole. So if in our case, safe to safest, we go back and we start the first relevant active shooter at a school or school shooting, if you will. And it surprises most to find out that the first school shooting happened in the late 1700s. So Columbine was not the kickoff of an active shooter at a school. It was just simply the most covered by the media due to the onboarding, if you will, of the 24-hour news cycle. So if the FBI understands what the FBI is good at and they stick to their mission, what they're going to do is start combating these things by getting more people ready. So an example is they recently spent a lot of money producing and releasing a very good film called The Coming Storm. And what it talks about is school shootings and how to handle them. But it does not talk about, it does not breach the subject of prevention. And police departments, they go to these FBI seminars and they get it. And all of a sudden, they become, in their thought process, we know about active shooters so we can go to businesses and we can help them. Well, all they're helping the police departments with, I mean, the businesses with or schools with, is what they're going to do when they get there. So I would digress back to the last question if we know that it takes 23 minutes for a first responder to make contact with, say, me, let's say I'm involved in the incident, and I'm not contacted for 23 minutes, I sure would want to know what to do for those 23 minutes. And the advantages and disadvantages are, one, you want to have a really good relationship with your police department or even your local FBI office, depending on how large your organization is, and invite them in often for seminars. Let them walk the building so they know that if something does go wrong, they can respond accordingly. But you also have to go backwards to what we call pre-bang, before the gunshots, before some type of horrific incident. And what that means is you need to get ready in the mindset of the people without scaring them. Some disadvantages of bringing consultants in is there are companies out there purporting to be active shooter experts or prevention experts or school place violence experts. And I mean, you can fill the gamut of the preface of expert 
and they come in and they say, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And the problem with that is they often instill fear in the participants instead of relaying a very common sense approach to, look, we're here to help you before anything goes wrong. And with this type of training, you'll be able to be aware of things that you weren't aware of before, making you a thousand times less likely to become a victim. We hope you found the information you've heard so far useful. I would like to take a moment and invite you to Prima's 2016 Annual Conference, June 5th through 8th in Atlanta, Georgia. Here are some words from Prima member Ed Beecher regarding why he values Prima's Annual Conference. The networking opportunities that I've gained through meeting so many diverse and skilled professionals, risk management professionals from across our country and internationally is like the most valuable takeaway at a conference. Aside from the fact that there are some amazing educational sessions presented by leaders in our industry, the opportunity that that I've experienced to meet our public risk managers and associate members of Prima, truly the leaders in our industry, it's invaluable. I mean, it's the infamous, it's priceless. To learn more about the annual conference, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Danica and Chris. Are there resources available for risk managers to help them make their entities a safer and a less vulnerable threat? Sure. So a company, the company that I come from that I founded is called Safe to Safest with the number two in the middle. Because we take you from safe to safest because right now our schools are very safe, but we want them to become safer. So, you know, we came up with Safe to Safest. Um, I've been doing this since 2007. And I've been involved in two active shooter incidents as they unfolded, uh, literally active shooter, true active shooter incidents. One was at the McKinney Police Department in 2010, and the other was with my family in 2011. So I have a unique perspective for how these incidents unfold from the inside. And what I've learned to do is document what happens from the inside and come up with a solution for people around how they should react should something like this happen or occur on their soil, if you will, or on their property. And what we do is we go to these risk managers and ask them a series of questions. And we usually have a, like a template, if you will. And we ask a series of questions of what are you looking for? What type of risks are you trying to mitigate? How can we help you? And if we can't at Safe the Safest, what we do is we recommend others that can. And there's a lot of good trainers out there. But at the same time, for every two or three really good, solid companies that are in business to help schools, there's 25 others that are, you know, they don't want to help. They just want to bill. And, you know, their, their mission is to receive invoices and accounts payable and receivable. And that, that's not necessarily disparaging on them. They're trying. But the problem with that is sometimes, you know, pardon the pun, but it backfires because what if you were to say, what if you were a risk manager for a local business? And I'm going to give you a, a real example, but we're going to speak in hypothetical terms. What if you called and said, um, we need to hire such and such consulting company to come in and give us an active shooter prevention course. And that company had a couple of police officers that were off duty 
And they went and they said, sure, we can do this. We know all about active shooters. We know how we're going to respond. So what they do is they recreate the event. And at the end of the day, that company that hired the officers and the people to go in and be their experts end up getting sued for $120 million because 10 of their employees sued them for PTSD and causing the very thing they're trying to prevent, which is fear. So Safe to Safest approaches every one of these with that in mind, the reduction of fear in every individual we come in contact with. And that's why we know we are a really good solution, but we're not a great solution for everyone. We have to, we have to have a common fit and we know what's not. So we, we probably say no as often as we say yes to going in and being retained for services, but we refer a lot of good companies and we're at about a hundred percent good rate right now, if you, if you will. Um, and that's why we recommend others is because we've worked with so many and how to lessen a vulnerable threat. Well, it takes training and that type of training has to come from people that understand this at a level that's beyond budgetary concerns. So let's say a police department, they want equipment, money, and resources as well as people. So if you look at New York, they spent a hundred million dollars on a counterterrorism unit. That's a new idea, if you will, because they went and got a bunch of grants. They put it together and then they admitted on TV during the rollout that these people cannot be on scene from the second an incident happens, but they're going to arrive a lot faster. Well, no one can define what a lot faster means. And that's where we go back again, 23 minutes. So you've just spent $100 million because it's in their interest for guns, equipment, police officers, resources, dispatchers, everything to make the city safer. But really what they're doing is they're hoping that by adding these people and these fundamental tenets that they will reduce the will of others to come and test them. And although it's a good strategy, that that $100 million could have been spent on training all the occupants or all the visitors of New York or whomever, the, the people who live there on some really small things that say, look, you know, is, we can go back to as simple as see something, say something. The Department of Homeland Security rolled that out and everybody thought that's not a very good strategy, but it turns out it's a great strategy because if you see something there's, and you're worried about it, Generally, there's a reason that you're worried, so you should notify someone, and that's when the police do come into uh, effect, and they're very productive because they can intercede before this happens, um, before any event happens. The problem is you don't know what your success rate is because you don't know what you can prevent. So the goal now is to just start the prevention on the front side, and that will mitigate your risk on the back side. Earlier, you mentioned the Belgium attack that happened just last week, and it has recently come to light that glass is the number one threat from this attack. Um, what are your recommendations to mitigate the risk that glass presents? Well, it's been pretty widely reported that Western civilizations, if you will, and countries are more, we're seeing more acts of terrorism occur. And although they're overseas, we're going to see them in our borders. I think the United States ranks number three on improvised explosive device incidents um, at the rate of about 30 a month that, you know, they're not reported widely, but they happen. 
And it's because, you know, sometimes there's goofball kids that put things together and it's deemed a IED. And other times it's somebody with heinous intentions like the people in San Bernardino. Well, if you start looking at explosives, the good news about the United States is military-grade explosives are very difficult to get because they're um, regulated so much. And, you know, mining institutions, armories, police departments, they have them, but they hold on to them very tightly. Whereas in the Western, uh, other Western countries, not in the United States, they're easy to, they're a little bit more easy to smuggle in. Now, having said that, there is the threat of an HME, a homemade explosive. And if you can detonate a homemade explosive, which is what we saw in Belgium for the most part, minus a couple of components that I'm not going to get into, but, um, they took it into the arrivals terminal of the airport, not the, not the departures. So people, you know, with no, there's no security on that side of the airport. It's got a lot of people up in arms that are security managers. What do we do about this other than have more police presence? Well, with all the new architecture, what do we see for the most part? Transparency. We see a lot of glass and the Belgium airport made us realize that glass is a bigger threat than we think of because if one of these vaporizing balls of fire goes off as an explosion, it can actually turn shards of glass into a larger weapon than the explosive device was intended to be. So one of the ways to deal with that is to look into concept items that are much more than a concept. Now they have grown leaps, you know, I would say a hundred thousand fold in a year. And there's a company called defense light. And it's basically a laminate piece of material that you can either put on top of glass or replace your glass. And Defense Light is in two locations, Canada and Florida. And what they do is they go in and measure your windows and they put this hardened film on it, if you will, or temp, uh, material on it. And it, it makes it blast resistant. It, it takes a lot to get to penetrate and get through it. And even if it does, it doesn't, instead of exploding into a thousand pieces like you would see the proverbial you know somebody hitting a hammer into the side of a piece of glass in a movie and it explodes this keeps the glass intact so it would actually just literally fall over and not becoming not become a thousand projectiles or shards of glass all at once and it would really reduce that threat the pro side of it is it's very cost effective when you look at the flip side of not doing anything the other side of it is it does take time to plan for the costing of it. So there's good and bad to everything, but this is really the lesser of all evils because although it costs a couple extra dollars than regular glass or laminates, it's probably the best one out there for these types of situations. Finally, what communication systems can be put in place to notify individuals in real time in order to reduce risk and to tighten awareness? Well, if we go back to, again to that 23 minutes, it takes 23 minutes for first responders to respond to anybody. And I know that sounds so redundant where people listen and they say, okay, we get it. It's 23 minutes. But if you really think about 23 minutes, that could be an attorney. That's about the length of this interview so far. So that means that's, that's the time it's going to take for someone to get to us. Should we be caught in the middle? Well, if we look at San, here's another incident, San Diego medical center. Um, the Naval Medical Center just a few weeks ago when there was an active shooter reported, and it turns out it wasn't. And they said that they submitted procedures for mass notification. 
Well, the problem is they sent out a text message and the text message failed to go because the cellular service didn't work in that part of the hospital. Then they sent out a Facebook post and that Facebook post didn't go because their Wi-Fi wasn't up and running and they weren't connected from their mobile device. So a panic started because one person called in saying they thought they heard something. Well, if there's a technology in place, which there are many and probably the best of the many and pro- and the most cost efficient of the many would be something like regroup, R-E-G-R-O-U-P. Regroup allows you to be a centralized person that gets the information that comes in and sends out a mass communication over um, email, if you will, or direct text messaging or all facets of social media. You get, in other words, you get to tailor it to the response that you want it to have. So if you wanted to send out a text message, you can request a text message. If you wanted to send out a mass alert to all desktop users, it could do that too. So imagine the lives that you could save at say a school where class is in session and somebody's trying to break through the door and that door has defense light on it. And it's slowing that person down from getting inside. No matter what they do, they can't break the glass. And instantly, one of the people in that institution has regroup and they hit the button and they, you know, they have, say, a canned message of whether it's 140 characters or 200 words. It really doesn't matter. And it says there is somebody trying to break into the building. Please go into our safe area. And that safe area should be somewhere that's hardened because we're trying to break the cycle of people just hiding. You don't want them to get under a desk. We, We could do another 20 minutes on why that's a bad idea. But for right now, just know that. The majority of these instances, if you look at Google and you type in, you know, after action photos of all these events, you'll find that people are hiding usually under tables. Table, you know, hiding under tables is not going to stop somebody that's on a mission to create casualties. So you need to notify people, look, get out and look at the Paris attacks in November of 2015. Geraldo Rivera was on TV talking about his daughter being at either the soccer stadium or the rock concert. I don't remember which I don't think he knew at the time, but what if someone there could have notified everyone and said, here's what's happening at this location. This is how we want you to respond. And it's simple. It reduces the need to have mass training drills. And it also exponentially reduces your risk for insurance, if you will, because you're now working on those haphazards and you're creating base layers of prevention instead of a whole lot of, response manuals. Far too often, entities look to policies and procedures. This is what we're doing. This is how we're going to do it. And this is what, you know, it's going to be. And if something goes wrong, then we'll turn into the continuity of operations. Well, what if we could do something like a reverse policy that says, here's how we're going to act so we prevent these incidents from occurring and we would have a greater preservation of life. And that's our philosophy. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Chris and Danica. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have a wonderful day.